0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about a book titled The Notebook A History of Thinking on Paper. The book was published in 2023 from Profile Books, and obviously, anyone participating in or listening to this, the New Books Network, is going to find this absolutely fascinating. I admit I had never thought about the history of the notebook, but I'm really glad that the author of the book, Dr. Roland Allen, who's with us today, has because it's a really fascinating story. So, Roland, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Um, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, you've given me a PhD, which I don't have, I'm afraid. I'm <laughs> Fair very enough. much. Um, I do have an MA though. Uh, well, why don't we start just, off we, then
1: with a bit of an introduction of yourself and how you came to write this?
0: Uh, yeah, um, well, I studied English language and literature when I was uh, much younger and then went on to do an MA with the Open University in um, popular culture and critical theory. Uh, but for really all of my professional life, I've been working in book publishing and working specifically on the sales side. So although I've always worked for book publishers, um, I've been, I've spent much more time in Excel documents than in Word documents, for instance, and uh, dealing with numbers and budgets much more than manuscripts and authors. Um, But uh, And so my interest in notebooks, I suppose, was initially professional, just because when you have a job and a fast moving, complicated job, um, you need to write things down to keep track of them some people managed to do it using digital tools but back when i started these were very rare and most people or nearly everyone would walk around carrying a notebook the entire time and when they found they had to do something they would write it down so um, professionally i've always been around notebooks of course as i suppose you have um but um i was then uh i guess Became very interested in diaries because I started keeping a diary in my late 20s. And this was very much inspired by the discovery of my grandfather's old diaries, uh, which are pre war. And I hadn't known him very well. And even though these were tiny diaries with very few, uh, sort of very minimal um, entries in them and, and a low word count, they really, really brought him to life. And This inspired me to start keeping my own diary. I read uh, Sam Pepys's diaries at the same time, which give you an amazing model for how to write a diary because he just puts everything in, which I think is the best way to do it. Um, So at the same time, I was becoming interested in journals and things like that. I was always drawing as well, so I always had sketchbooks. Um, And then I guess in about uh, 20... 182019 i the question just popped into my head where do notebooks actually come from because i had stacks of them at home everyone i knew did um i was even working i was even helping to publish notebooks at this point and sell them rather unsuccessfully um but no one seemed to know where notebooks had come from and the normal sources your google your googles your wikipedias etc didn't help at all and I needed to dig a little more deeply. And I guess the story of what I found when I was looking around is the story of the notebook.
1: I'm fascinated by how often I speak to authors who are like, I was interested in this and wanted to go read a book about it and then discovered there wasn't one. wasn't one, yes. <laughs> so that's exactly. what I had to write. Um, so given that wonderful backstory, um, I think it makes sense to kind of start at the beginning of the time period you look at really. And um, I'd love to ask you about paper, because obviously we can't have notebooks if we've not got paper. So can you walk us through how paper really revolutionized all sorts of things in the Islamic world, help us get a sense of kind of when and where that's happening, and why it was happening there and then, and not in other places, for example, Europe at the same time?
0: Yeah. So um, I guess you could look at a a, a notebook today, a moleskin, for instance, and essentially, it's got your components, which are paper and covers, and the form, which is the codex, um, which is pages bound together as, as we use them today in a book or in a, in a notebook. And that codex form is a Western invention. And the first books were, I suppose, at the end of the classical period, beginning of the medieval period. You get the first big Bibles, for instance, um, where you have choirs of paper, which are bound up together together into a big fat codex and you have pages like we have today. And that was a um, European or Christian, if you like, innovation. And at the same time as um, that, uh, but all of the books which were made at that point were of parchment. And at the same time, but at the other end of the Silk Roads, you have people inventing paper in China, which initially was made from mulberry bark, which is a very local ingredient. But they quickly found that you could make paper out of, Almost any organic matter. If you pulp or cellulose, if you if you pulp it, right up. Um, Old cloth, in particular, is particularly good for making paper. Old linen. And uh, so, this amazing material moves west along the Silk Roads, and the Codex moves east in the other direction, and they meet around the year 800 in Baghdad, which is the capital of the Caliphate at that time, and just on the cusp of amazing things happening. Um, You have uh, this huge growth in literacy over the course of the ninth century, and everything that follows from that, you have um, enormous numbers of translations, you have medicine, you have law, you have literature, and uh, the the caliphates at this point are really sophisticated, highly literate um, societies with busy bureaucracies, and streets of booksellers. I was just um, checking up on a couple of things before we spoke and there was discovered, rediscovered that there was a stationer's market at this point in Baghdad which had more than 100 shops selling paper and books. Um, now the strange thing is that uh, there must have been notebooks at this point, i.e. An, a book where you just write down your your random thoughts or what you're working on, your work in progress whether that's numbers like an accounts book or whether that's a personal diary or a working notebook but they really don't seem to have survived in the Islamic world but um, they do survive in Europe and they turn up in Europe uh, at the end much later, uh, towards the end of the 13th century and that's after the conquest of a what is now a Spanish town called Hativa um, by James I of Spain or Catalonia, depending on how you prioritize him, King of Aragon or Catalonia. Uh, And he was very, very keen to capture Hativa because it was a center of linen production and a center of paper production. It made some of the best paper in the Islamic world, and he recognized its value for administering his kingdom, which was growing very fast. Um, So uh, he ruled for a very long time, for nearly 50 years, over the 13th century, and each decade, the amount of paperwork he left behind doubled. So he was generating stupendous quantities of deeds and laws and things like that. Indeed, maritime law worldwide is based on Catalan maritime law from the 13th century. So I guess that's the first impact that paper has on Europe significantly is in the growth of, um, the Spanish or Catalan government at that point. But it's very, very quickly appropriated and adapted by a different, uh, class of people, a group of people altogether. And these are Italian merchants, um, specifically really, uh, based around Florence or mostly based around Florence. So what you see is, um, them using notebooks as business ledgers, financial ledgers, account books, um, in all sorts of different ways. Uh, I'm aware I've traveled quite a long way from the Islamic world. Um, just to wind up, though, that question, it really is surprising to me, and I've spoken about it with um, Jonathan Bloom, who is really the preeminent authority on um, Professor Jonathan Bloom, um, on Islamic paper, um, and... And he can't find any notebooks. He mentioned a couple of working manuscripts which sort of fit the bill, but there's nothing like the archives full, um, which you find in in Italian cities. So um, it's a real surprise to me. If I had um, if I spoke Arabic or felt better qualified to research um, Arabic collections, I definitely would. But uh, I don't have those skills, so I, I stuck with Europe.
1: Well, who knows? Maybe someone listening will add that on to our knowledge, um, given that very helpful explanation you've just given us. Um obviously the the Florentine accounting piece of this is one part, and I think we'll kind of end up talking about it a bit more as we go further, but in some ways, that seems the kind of I don't want to say the most obvious aspect of notebook origin history, but at least to me, perhaps, that was the piece I was a little bit more familiar with. And I want to make sure we don't over-focus on that aspect and not look at some of the other impacts that the notebook um, has kind of right at this initial European-Italian stage of it. So I wonder if I could ask you to tell us a bit about notebooks not just having an impact on the merchant financial side, But also, if we're looking at visual art, if we're looking at the emergence of the Renaissance, how do notebooks fit into that?
0: Um, This is an interesting one. You've got to imagine Florence as a city which was very, very commercial. Um, it, It ran on business, probably more than any other city at the time. And business ran on notebooks. And therefore, they were pretty much everywhere. We know, for instance, that when um from the wills which people have left behind and this is from this sort of the year 1300 onwards uh, most florentine families had two or three books that was the average more than two books left in a in a will so you're talking about a very literate society and a, a society where notebooks are everywhere and it's therefore completely logical that they get picked up by other kinds of people by artists etc Now, the problem is that we don't have any surviving sketchbooks from the 14th century, really, to speak of at all. Um, But I strongly suspect that they existed in large numbers. And there are two big reasons. One of them is um, that the artists themselves, when they're writing about how they work, they always mention their sketchbooks. So, Ghiberti, for instance, writes about how he works and he mentions that he carries a book around and he always makes notes and visual notes and sketches in it. Um, Later on, uh, Leonardo and Vasari both stress the importance of this in their own writings. So, um, Leonardo, obviously his sketchbooks survive or some of them survive, but he also writes about the importance of always going everywhere with a sketchbook or a notebook. And um, Vasari in his Lives of the Great Artists, which I know Uh, Art historians take with a huge pinch of salt when it comes to biographical details, quite rightly, um, repeatedly mentions given artists working in sketchbooks in the open air. So we do have the contemporary record of sketchbooks being used, even if very few of them actually survive before, for instance, the time of Leonardo, which is much later. Uh, So I, I personally am very confident that sketchbooks were a really important part of the development of Florentine and Italian art at that time. So I would point to, um, firstly, over this period, there is a huge development in Western art, which is that artists, or painters in particular, suddenly discover realistic resemblance. They can draw portraits as we understand them for the first time. So for instance. Um, uh, one exercise you can look at is pictures of popes. We know we don't know what any pope before about the year 1300 actually looked like. Every single picture of them, obviously there are many, shows a generic figure wearing a pope's outfit, and that's how you know, or gesturing in a papal way or sitting on a throne. And the faces and um, the gestures, the bodies, look exactly the same as everyone else else's around them at the time from the year 1300s onwards we know i think what nearly all the popes actually looked like it, there are realistic portraits of all of them so we can see who was bald who was tall who was fat etc who was young um so but that is obviously uh not directly connected to notebooks but it is clearly a major development in western art um the other one is that you can go a bit more granular and look at the Techniques of drawing and, for instance, hatching, which is making repeated strokes with a pencil or pen um, to build up form or shadow, light and shade, that appears at this time. There is no hatching in Western art before about 1300-ish, and it's one of the most important tools of any artist who draws realistically. Mm. Um, So where did that come from? my suspicion is that it's near impossible to hatch on parchment because your ink will just puddle up and form a big leg whereas it's very easy to hatch on paper um, so artists practiced it and could get good at it uh, and therefore employ this very sort of specific um, skill uh, which is still very important to artists today so it, there is this frustrating hole where we don't have Giotto's sketchbook for instance but I think there's very good reasons to believe that he had one.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I admit that as someone who has zero artistic talent whatsoever, this one kind of blew my mind. Of course, practice would enable more realistic forms of drawing. Just because it's never happened to me with a notebook Mm. doesn't mean that this wouldn't have a major impact. So thank you for drawing those lines for us, even with, of course, the challenges of, with all historians, you know, not everything's in the archive as much as we wish it would be um obviously this doesn't stay in northern Italy neither the financial side nor the artistic side can you tell us a bit about how notebooks moved outwards from for example places like Tuscany or Florence
0: yeah they um so the the Tuscans tried or they weren't Tuscans actually they were in the marque um tried very hard to hold on to the secrets of paper making which they had taken on actually a couple of years stages from the Islamic papermakers they couldn't obviously um, trade secrets leak out so you have papermaking slowly make its way north of the Alps over the next sort of 1500 years um, and particularly into southern Germany and particularly into um, Provence and southern France and then sort of northern France north of the Loire so papermaking moves and with it you see notebooks move and largely it's along the roots of the Italian merchants, the Florentines, the Genoans, the Venetians, um, because they are the ones who, they're the the early adopters of this tool and the most visible users, because obviously as merchants, they're quite public figures. Um, So you see uh, the techniques of bookkeeping being adopted um, outside Italy, first in southern Germany around Augsburg, uh, Nuremberg, you have, um, for instance, the Fuggers of Augsburg, who are very successful bankers, The sort of the first successful bankers outside of Italy in Europe. Um, and it also moves up to the Low Countries, which is very important as the source of a lot of, or the market of much of Europe's wool, all um, of the wool which um, the English landowners sold passed through the Low Countries on its way down to Italy to be turned into fine broadcloth or... To be guided and then sold back to them. So the, those are the the main routes up through from Venice north into Germany and then um, along the sort of Rhone Valley and those trade routes up through France towards towards the Low Countries and England. Mm-hmm. But after about a hundred years or so, um, or a little bit longer, notebooks have really sort of penetrated all of um, developed Europe, you might say,
1: mm-hmm. and i mean as you said it's kind of such a useful technology um especially with so much trade is not going to stay in one place for long um and it's sort of also not in one sector so we've talked a bit about trade a bit about visual art can you talk us through how this pervasiveness of notebooks now in many places influenced how writers wrote looking at literature
0: yeah so this this is something we can be much more confident about um, because writers have left, because I spoke, because they're writing on notebooks, um, much better records of their connections to notebooks. Um, And I guess it works in two directions. One of the most interesting aspects of, of my initial literature degree all those years ago was looking at not just writers, but also their readerships and how changing, growing, shrinking readerships affect what writers are able to create and what they put out. And you could say that a writer who has never read and um, sort of barely exists um, as a creative force. And uh, what is really interesting about the Tuscan towns and about Florence in particular is the way that these notebooks I mentioned, which everyone has in their home, become the medium for a new literature. Because everyone, or well, Everyone who's interested in reading for pleasure, put it like that, keeps a Zibaldoni, which is a kind of hodgepodge. It's a miscellany. It's where you quickly scribble down anything you want to keep to enjoy later on. And they're sort of like personal anthologies. A lot of people have kept these over the years. I did myself when I was um, a teenager, writing down song, song lyrics and poems and things like that. But the Florentines were really mad for it so hundreds if not thousands of these survive from the 14th and 15th centuries whereas very few survive from other places and so you've got this culture of literature being shared and retained and read in the home probably read, you know, aloud to your family members or friends and then probably being shared with your neighbours if you found something particularly good and it was um, contemporary stuff by by which... um, Dante was hugely popular, but also Petrarch, um, Boccaccio. You had the classics, you had Ovid, you had religious writings of all kinds, prayers, sermons, letters of the church fathers, etc. Some of it could well be in Latin, Um, it was, or, or the vernacular too, it was just what you wanted to keep because it was enjoyable or useful. And against this backdrop of active participating readers who are all the time selecting what they like, edit, editing for themselves, if you like, their own collections of prose and poetry. Against that backdrop, you have Dante, Petra, Boccaccio, several generations of really innovative and hugely successful at the time um, authors writing in the vernacular. And you haven't really seen a movement like that Obviously, there is a lot of old English poetry or old poetry in old European languages, post-classical literature, but it's just not on the same scale as you see in sort of erupting around Tuscany over the course of the 14th century to the point where, you know, sort of it defines Italian language even as it is spoken today Mm. uh, and taught. Um, And that is a very, so the readership is notebook based, if you like but you could also say that this work which is long much longer more complicated has more layers to unpick than a lot of the literature which went before um also depends very much on notebooks as a as a writing medium as a as a way to scribble down notes and then develop them as a way to copy something you found interesting uh, and then develop it refine it and um and then transmit it.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, so Chaucer is a great example of this. Of course, he goes to Italy a couple of times. And when he comes back, he produces work in English, which is clearly very derivative of Italian models. And he himself writes about how he, his day job is working in um, the Port of London, uh, overseeing imports and exports for, the, um, for John of Gaunt. Uh, And he moans about how he spends all day looking at account books and all night looking at the same kind of books while he's writing his poetry and hurting his eyes in the process.
1: (laughs) Yes, very much an influence there. And in fact, um, I'd love to ask you to kind of tell us a bit more about some things you've mentioned, the idea of how people were using the notebooks, not just the writers, but as you said, the kind of literary culture, the readership culture was notebook based. In some ways, we still seem to use notebooks in the same sorts of ways as the people at this time period. But in some ways, they seem to be using notebooks in somewhat different kind of ways as information technology. So can you tell us a bit more about kind of how everyday people maybe used notebooks, how it was part of their thinking processes?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and again, this, this is... Someone asked me, oh, is this a class thing? Is it to do with wealth? And it isn't really. It's much more to do with geography. If you lived in a place where there happened to be lots of notebooks or easy access to them, then um, you didn't have to be very wealthy to to use them in different ways. Uh, On the other hand, if there weren't notebooks around, you didn't use them full stop. So a lot of these habits were very, very local. Um, The Zibaldoni was really local to Tuscany, for instance. But across Italy, um, where notebooks were certainly widely available in all of the towns and cities, you start to have people, for instance, keeping home account books. So they're measuring or keeping track of their expenditures, their incomes, their taxes, um, and sort of households become increasingly financially sophisticated over this time. Um, You have uh, various family record books. So... These are kind of family logs where you would record births, deaths, marriages, significant um, events within the family like that. And these would be passed, you know, they would obviously run for decades and then be passed down generations. Um, So you have people creating a sense of family through them. Um, And being so flexible, these uses often overlap. So you will have, um, for instance, a collection of prayers, which will turn into, um, a family record book, or you'll have a household accounts book, which will turn into, um, a family, uh, a family record book. So there are always lots of gray areas like this, but that just goes to show the flexibility of the medium.
1: Yeah. And the usefulness of it, um, Mm -hmm. and the Testament of it being useful enough to pass down. So that's helpful to understand
0: expenses were a wonderful thing these are very revealing um, Albrechts Durer for instance, when he traveled he kept meticulous records of his expenses you know so we know that every night what, what he spent every night in an inn on beer and lodging and food for instance um, and this kind of is, is wonderfully evocative when you come across them and it, it I think there's a little paradox that almost the smaller and more insignificant the detail is at the time the more evocative it becomes to us, the modern reader. Um, I I was reading one biography of Dürer, which sort of complained that Dürer didn't write about big artistic matters in his diaries. He just wrote down how much he spent on beer. Um, But then, of course, this uh, biography repeatedly quoted from those diaries and really brought his life to Mm. life.
1: Yeah, no, those small things tell us a lot more about kind of what people's everyday was like. Um, And in fact, this continues, and especially as a historian, I'm like, ooh, the archive gets even better as we go through, Uh, because you talk about the 16th and 17th centuries as very much being a golden age of notebook culture. To be honest, what you've told us so far sounds pretty good. So what is even more happening in this time period? Uh,
0: This is, I guess, where it becomes... really all across all of Europe, all the time, people are using notebooks for all kinds of things. So this is where that local problem, if you like, of availability recedes. And I think one of the most significant events uh, is right at the beginning of the 16th century, sort of around 1510 and 1512, when Erasmus, who was hugely respected, obviously, and probably the most widely read European of his time in terms of um, published books, uh, he recommends that every schoolboy, and I'm afraid he was only interested in boys, um, keep their own commonplace book. And this is the arrival of the commonplace book in um, an educational setting, which very quickly becomes almost universal. So what we think of as the grammar school education, um, which is based on excerpting from whatever you read, selecting what's important from it, and then organizing those thoughts under headwords, thematic headwords, in a commonplace book, an organized commonplace book, this becomes hugely important um, over the 16th and 17th centuries. So, uh, anyone who was properly educated would have kept this kind of very systematic collection of the thoughts of preceding writers. And this kind of leads to a, as I think you might call it hyperliteracy. If you look at someone like Shakespeare or Johnson or their contemporaries, they had read a colossal amount in their own language, but also in Latin, often in Greek too. And they hadn't just read it, they'd really engaged with these texts, because in order to make your own commonplace book, you have to chop out the bits which are interesting, and you have to sort them by topic and then write them down again. And this forces you to engage really, really closely with the text, to think about the words which are chosen by an author, to think about um, their lexis, to think about their syntax and everything like that, which obviously, if you're a developing writer, is enorm- uh, terrific training, but really hard work. So the spread of commonplace books um, over eu- across Europe, I think, is part of that golden age. Uh, at the same time, you have governments adopting commercial principles and governing on commercial principles. And the first government to do this is the Dutch and the Dutch Republic is very much, it kind of models itself on an Italian city state in terms of very, very carefully keeping track of money and being very bureaucratic and, um, financially literate in a way which your late medieval King just never had been, Um, so, and then, you know, the Dutch Republic was a very well-run business, which is a large part of, I think, its success over the um, 16th and 17th centuries. But then you have the French later on, or slightly later on, um, the middle of the 17th century, seeing that success. And you have um, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, uh, who is the finance minister, of or one of the finance ministers of uh, Louis XIV. And he completely transforms... The way France is governed, which is the largest, most powerful, richest of uh, the state, European states, um, and that is with paperwork again and huge, huge numbers of ledgers and portfolios and double-entry bookkeeping for all kinds of government business. Um, Louis the Fourteenth—you know—we think of him as as the Sun King. He understood a balance sheet. And he was certainly the first French king to understand a balance sheet. He was possibly the first of any kings to be able to do that. Um, and that sort of training is due to um, notebooks and financial ledgers and literacy, that kind of ability to use the information technology um, becoming more and more important over the time. And one more thing.
1: No, this is great.
0: <laughs> this is when diaries arrived as well. Um which I often surprises me. I think diaries. I think this is one of the first insights I had back when I was really starting to think about these things. Is diaries arrived very, very late in the story of human literacy. So the first diaries, as we understand them, where an ordinary person just writes down the events of their day for their own benefit, and um, not with any other reader necessarily in mind that seems to have emerged in England in the second half of the 16th century. And when you consider that there have been plenty of people in England, for instance, reading and writing for a thousand years or more at this point, why did it take them so long to start writing diaries? Um, I I honestly don't know the answer to that, and I've not seen a convincing answer to it. But the, the fact is, you know, that is where diaries pop up. And they catch on really, really quickly over the course of the 17th century. Mm. And the common thread, the only common thread I could find with the, the early diaries I looked at is that the people who wrote them tended to have difficult marriages or lots of marital strife. Um, and uh, certainly I can see that diaries, having keeping a diary in that scenario was a very valuable thing. Samuel Pepys famously had um quite a fraught marriage, but also, you know, I've read the diaries of completely unknown Yorkshire farmers, for instance, and it is all about bust-ups with his wife and being shut out at night and um, her drunkenly telling him to sling his hook. Apart from that, I honestly don't know why diaries popped up when they did, but they did at the end of the 16th century, and then they spread very widely over the 17th, and I think that's an important part of it. That's another reason why I would call that a golden age.
1: Absolutely. That's such a number of things. Um, And I must echo that that is a fascinating question. So anyone listening who either knows the answer or wants to go find it out, please let us know because I'd be fascinated. Um, And I think that there's, I mean, there's a bunch of things there. uh, And I will, I think, at this point, point the listeners to the book, the full book of yours itself. Obviously, we're doing, in some senses, a highlights tour of the book. There's a lot of great detail further to get into if you're interested and i'm glad you talked about the sun king because the detailed descriptions of the various portfolios and notebooks that his ministers presented him with i mean I'd learn how to read a balance sheet if it was all inlaid in gold leaf. I mean, these notebooks (laughs) sounded extraordinary. So I'm so glad you mentioned them. Uh, And I'd like to ask you to tell us about another sort of famous figure of history and the role of his notebooks. Uh, But moving away from the French monarchy to English scientists, you have this great sentence, quote, there can't be a clearer example of the notebook's intellectual potential than Darwin's story can you take us through this one?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I love this. Fortunately, we are very lucky in as much as nearly all of Darwin's notebooks and papers survive and have been sort of well-researched. And there are editions of all of his working notebooks, for instance, from the Beagle voyage. So when Darwin went off on the Beagle, um, he was very young. He was sent as a geologist despite the fact that his geological experience amounted to one summer holiday in North Wales researching rock formations or one um, university summer holiday I should say. Um, and he was unpublished. He was completely unknown. He was quite well connected academically um, but he was in no sense an authority when he left on the Beagle. Uh, with him he took a fairly small library of reference works. It was small, which was up to date though, fortunately. And he took a bunch of notebooks and his method was to go ashore everywhere from the Canary Islands to the Falklands, all over South America, famously the Galapagos, but also Australia. He would go ashore with a tiny notebook, uh, smaller than your phone probably, and a pencil And he would make very, very scratchy notes, but he would note everything he saw. And these notebooks have been transcribed and there are editions of them. But what I find most interesting about them is they're completely incoherent. They are not full sentences. They're very, very scratchy notes, scratchy diagrams. He couldn't draw either. Um, But then they would fill up on the course of his excursions. Then he would take them back to the Beagle break out a much larger ledger and write them up in full, expanding his entries and referring to his sort of library of reference works on the boat. And these little notebooks are therefore the source of absolutely everything which followed in Darwin's career. So the whole, um, the origin of species, etc., all ultimately derives from the observations he recorded in these tiny notebooks. There are, I think, fourteen of them which survive, which is all of them. And as I say, none of them is larger than your phone. You can, when I asked um, Professor John Van Wye, who's the expert on this, if you could fit all of them into a shoebox, he just laughed because if you put all of them into a shoebox, you'd have you'd be able to rattle it around. That it's they're tiny, and um, yet from this really really scratchy entries in tiny humble cheap notebooks he was able to iterate and pull in additional research and think on the page and just work up theories and he produced not only ultimately the origin of species but also numbers of other books and the first geological survey of the andes which is very reliable geological survey of the andes and you know and I, I just think from tiny, tiny acorns, mighty oaks, that there, there are no tinier, scrappier looking notebooks around than Darwin's field notebooks. And <laughs> the results are just incredible.
1: That's I've become quite
0: a... incoherent, as you can hear. <laughs> this... no,
1: it's, a, it's a great story. And um, that idea, you know, the rattling around the shoebox, I think is something that I found at least very evocative. Um, And in some ways, I actually kind of understood some links between that part of the book and the part. In some ways much more modern that you talk about police notebooks um this idea of kind of the small thing you carry with you as you go about things that then has different uses sort of back at the office back on the ship exactly yes so can we jump to that then can you tell us a bit about police notebooks and what their original use was and how they shifted into what we still see in real life in tv dramas all over the place
0: yeah and this is a great example of research completely upending my expectations. Um, I uh, All policemen, until very recently, in whatever police force they served in, have always been in- issued with a notebook. It's absolutely part of the standard kit. So in the UK, you would have your truncheon, you would have a whistle, you would have a notebook and handcuffs, and that was it. That made you a policeman, if you like. Um, and the reason was... Nothing to do with detection, it was all to do with control, because you would keep in that notebook a very detailed record of your movements over the course of your beat, and at any given moment on your beat, which was predetermined and you had to stick to quite rigidly, a sergeant might pop up, open your notebook, and check that you had been where you were supposed to be two hours before, in the middle of a dark night in February in 1830-whatever when really any sensible person would have been home in bed. So they are just logs of a copper's movement. That is how they start up. And any idea that they might have been sort of field notebooks for detection or for um, preserving evidence or interviewing witnesses, anything like that is secondary. The first reason for keeping a notebook if you're a policeman is so that other policemen can keep track of you. That said, if you did see anything interesting, after a while, they did expect you to start writing it down in your notebook. And then once you got back to the station, you would move that entry from your notebook into the big sort of daybook of the police station, which was a much bigger ledger of events, similar to a big diary. Um, The person who was responsible for checking your notebook to make sure that you did that, they were inspecting your notebook, and that's why they became inspectors. So your first police inspectors were people who were looking at other people's paperwork. That was that was their role and their job title. Um, and over time, um, it became clear that not only would police write down stuff which was useful, which they had observed, but also things which might be useful to them, which they hadn't necessarily observed. So at this point, um, I don't want to give too much away, but the, uh, the history of be, or rather there is a constant struggle with the police trying to make sure that notebooks are accurate and it's a struggle they never ever succeed with, which is why um, they're now being phased out. In the UK, they tried to regulate it in all kinds of different ways um, and over the last few years, and we really comparatively recently, have moved on to digital recording. So now they make their notes on iPads or iPhones. And they record things with body cams and things like that just because notebooks are so unreliable. Um, in New York, it was even worse. They were barely regulated there. And, um, you know, uh, I so, I mean, they were not reliable sources of evidence, put it like that.
1: Well, so in a lot of ways, that raises, I think, um, perhaps. Too obvious a question, but I think one worth grappling with. If in this context of police work, notebooks have problems, if some of the uses, for example, of the commonplace book of copying things from elsewhere, we can do that much more easily now with things like copy-paste on electronic means. And yet notebooks are still really quite popular today. Why? Uh,
0: We haven't come up with anything better yet. Um, I was thinking uh, thinking about this question earlier and uh, and it is a question which always comes up every time I speak about notebooks in public someone will ask you know notebook versus digital device a, a version of that question we haven't come up with anything better um, and there are so many ways to look at the question I think mm-hmm. The commonplace book point you make is really interesting because what if you imagine cutting and pasting chunks of poetry or prose which you found useful into a word document there's very little intellectual effort in that you cut and paste and then you can forget about it it takes a second so it's very easy and you can do tons of it very very rapidly but you don't engage anything like as closely with the text when you do that and therefore it has less of an effect on you because you know as i was saying earlier you're not thinking about the 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 craft of the writer, their word choices, their the way they construct sentences and whatever. And when you're copying something out by hand, you just have to think about that stuff. You're engaging with it and you cannot just you know, control C, control V and forget about it. Um, and th- therefore, it goes much better into your brain, whatever information it is that you're working with. Um, it You will retain it better and you will be able to recall it better. There are two sides of memory, retention and recall. Um, And if you're writing stuff by hand, you retain and recall much better than if you are typing. We know this now. There's been a lot of research on it. So there is that sense of handwriting is just better if you want to engage with words or engage with ideas. Um, There's obviously the convenience that notebooks' batteries don't run out. there is a really interesting thought that when you write something down, and this has been researched again, um, I think by a lot of the research in this area comes out of Japan. I think this is a Japanese academic um, That when you write something down in a notebook, that entry finds a place in your mental map, literally your mental map, the same part of your brain which tells you where the um, bus stop is. And, but And therefore you can sort of locate your thought later on. And you must know this feeling of flicking through a notebook going, oh yeah, it's not this page, it's not, here it is. Very quickly being able to find what it is you need to find that you wrote down. When we write something on a screen, the page then just scrolls up to the top, vanishes off the top of the screen or off the top of the iPad, off the top of the phone and vanishes. And our mental map cannot locate those thoughts in the same way as it can when you've created a mark on a page. So, at a long word document full of useful notes is much less easy for us to navigate than pages and pages of a notebook filled with useful notes. Um, and if I was teaching, I mean, fortunately, when I was studying, we all had to make notes by hand. I'm of that probably the last generation where that's the case. If I was teaching at a university now, facing a lecture theatre full of open laptops, I would certainly ask my students to consider writing by hand, um, and I would strongly encourage them to do so, because all of the research points to that being a better way to organize um, thoughts. There's terrific research on this out of um, out of the state, actually, when, when they look at the practicalities of um, lecture note-taking. There's an academic I spoke to you called um, Ken Kievra, who's made this his career, I think he's at University of Oklahoma. And he and he makes it very clear that it has to be a two-way thing. The the teacher has to make a presentation in a way which it's easy to make notes from, but also that the note making by hand process, which necessarily involves paraphrasing and organizing your thoughts on the page and organizing chunks of text and arrows and lines between them, text hierarchies etc, all of the things I did when I was making notes by hand as a student Um, that process particularly of paraphrasing not writing down verbatim what the teacher has just said but putting it into new words because you have no time uh, is really really important in terms of um, creating strong memories but also deeply understanding what has been said um, the problem with typing, the great advantage and the great problem with it is the same thing. You can type as fast as someone can speak. You cannot write by hand as fast as someone can speak, by and large. So <laughs> you are therefore forced to edit, to paraphrase on the fly, and that process that fosters a really, really strong engagement with what's being said.
1: No, um, fair enough. Um, we, as you said, have not invented something better yet. Uh, I do have, I know in some ways we've come to kind of the end of what the book covers, but I do have two final questions. Um, obviously, through my sort of editorializing, I suppose, I've revealed perhaps one of my favorite examples of notebooks that you include in the book. But as you're the one who's actually spent all the time with all of them and gotten to see them in person, which one might be your favorite or most fascinating or most surprising?
0: Uh, there, I, I suppose I'll give you two answers to that. Firstly, when it comes to like the big famous notebooks or the ones which have had an effect on the world, I think you can't trump Darwin's. Just I, I really love them because they're so humble and approachable, and you know he was really learning as he went along. So it's a very inspiring story that you can start with something which is so basic and notes which are so uh, rudimentary, but then your thoughts can really take flight based on them. That's so that's the famous one. Um, then in terms of what did I really enjoy researching the most, this was a notebook I came across completely by accident, it's in the collections of the British Library and it's only in there because um, as I said earlier, commonplace booking is really difficult, it's hard work, it's laborious and they came up with various gimmicks over the centuries in order to make it a little bit easier for people so they would mark it half-printed commonplace books in the 18th and 19th centuries, which you would buy, which would be printed, but which would have lots of space for you to complete yourself. So you could create your own um, commonplace with a little bit less effort than if it was an entirely blank notebook. And I was researching these sort of half-book, half-notebook hybrids, and I found one in the British Library which um, had been completed and it hadn't been completed in any systematic way. It was what you might call a Zibaldoni, and it had a really interesting hodgepodge of inscriptions. It had grave inscriptions, for instance, and um, it had quite crude poetry, a rude limericks about local characters. Um, It had chunks of newspaper stories which had been copied out. It had an entire book, which had been copied out, which was an account of the Lisbon earthquake, which was in the, the mid-18th century. Someone, a, a British merchant who'd been been in Portugal at the time, had written a book-length account of this earthquake, which the owner of this notebook had copied out in full. Um, and it had, but at the same time, it had accounts of like journeys across East Anglia. Um, it had recipes, it had medicinal things, and... I loved it because the handwriting started off very neat and easy, but by the end of the book, it's horrible, it's shaky, it's difficult to read, it scratches across the page. And whereas before you've started with this, it's almost a travelogue because the guy or the writer goes from church to church writing down the the gravestone inscriptions that he finds most poignant. And at the end, he's writing down recipes for brumange and other things which are really easy to eat if you have no teeth. And his handwriting is, and he's writing down, you know, cures for various illnesses as well. And his handwriting has already gone to pot. So you can see the author age over the course of it. So I really sort of fell in, didn't fall in love with this guy, but I became very, very interested by the writer. But he hadn't at any point written his own name in the book.
1: Oh.
0: So I had no idea who he was. But then. And this was a, this was an exciting couple of days. I mean, I'm sure as a researcher you can appreciate this.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Now, I, I, I went back, and so I looked at the map. I matched the churchyards to where he to the map to see where where it was he was probably from, and they roughly speaking were from East Anglia, um, what in the line of the A12 now i.e. the coast road from roughly from northern East Anglia, from Norwich down to London, um, were all these churches. So it seemed to be someone who went back and forth from Norfolk to London. Um, A lot of the uh, things which had been copied out of newspapers related to the beer trade, to breweries, there was a piece of doggerel which was extremely rude about the beer which was brewed by a certain Mrs. somebody in King's Lynn and said, uh, You must not drink it. It is entire mundungus, free of hops and malt. Mundungus meaning um, manure. Uh, so, and this seemed like an amateur poem, to put it mildly. Um, the reason this person might have been interested in the Lisbon earthquake was because Lisbon was the source of most wine drunk in inns at this point. Um, so the heavy fortified wines, your Madeiras and your ports, all came through Lisbon. So it seemed that they were uh, in the alcohol business. Uh, he'd copied out a couple of letters from his someone who seemed to be his son, whose initials were T.T. and T.T. was married to Betty. So I had a TT, a Betty Norwich, I had a rough date, which was the 1780s, and I had the brewing uh, business, and fortunately, there's enough online to let me narrow it down and down and down, and I found out, finally, who it was. It was a guy called Stackhouse Thompson, who died at the right time, um, who had owned a brewery in Norwich, which made stout, which was why he was so appalled by the stout made by his competitors. And he had a son called Thomas who took over the business from him. And Thomas was married to an Elizabeth Abetti. So, uh, and that was just thrilling, um, you know, to come to, to locate this completely unknown person, purely on the basis of what he'd found interesting enough to write down in his Zibaldoni, um, and uh, so I guess that is my favorite. And it's in the British Library. Um, I still, you know, there's no connection on in terms of the catalog. I should really tell them that I think I've found who wrote it. But at the moment, it's just an anonymous manuscript in the British Library. And uh, <laughs> that, was, that was really exhilarating, actually. Sadly, the um, <laughs> editor said, no. <laughs> the book, that house was just too unknown. We needed more on Leonardo. Um, but it was still really fun to research.
1: Absolutely. Well, and thank you so much for sharing that story with us. It's a, I think a fabulous way to close out the interview, leaving only therefore, my final question. Um, this book is out. People can go read all these fabulous details. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it has anything to do with notebooks that you'd like to preview?
0: Um, uh, no and i'm having real trouble which is an endorsement of this book i hope i'm having real trouble finding anything which interests me half <laughs> with my notebook you know this it's a lot of work writing a book you have it... to be really passionately invested in it and at the moment every topic i look at and research i come across a character i look at their notebooks and immediately i'm just way more interested in their notebooks than whatever else, else. <laughs> um, so it may just be that I become the notebook guy the notebook person. and that is my Are destiny. The...
1: Well, you know, it could be a lot worse because there's a lot that's interesting about this. So thank you very much for telling us about the book. Again, it's titled The Notebook, A History of Thinking on Paper from Profile Books. Roland, thank you so much for being with us and telling us all about these fabulous notebooks.
0: Thank you so much, Miranda. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.